0: Opening day. (laughs) To me, no more two beautiful words in the English language. (laughs) And to mark this absolutely auspicious, wonderful day, this day for me that is Christmas, Easter, Passover, Kwanzaa, New Year's, all rolled into one. I'm going to share with you some of the Finest words I ever heard about our national pastime from the late, great George Carlin. Comparing football and baseball and seeing in the differences, at least how we perceive them, the differences between the two sports that occupy a lot of my mental brain space, at least some of the differences of who we are as people. And he says, baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. Baseball is played on a diamond in a park. The baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. Baseball begins in the spring, in the season of new life. Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. In football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. Football is concerned with downs. What down is it? Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up? Are you up? I'm not up. Who's up? He's up. In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. In football, the specialist comes in to kick something. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve Somebody. (laughs) Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, piling on, personal fouls, late hitting, and unnecessary roughness. Baseball has the sacrifice. Football is played in any kind of weather. Rain, snow, sleet, hail, fog, can't see the game, don't know if there's a game going on. Mud on the field, can't read the uniforms, can't read the yard markers. The struggle will continue. In baseball, if it rains... We don't go out to play. <laughs> baseball has... Ah, the seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. <laughs> baseball has no time limit. We don't know when it's going to end. We may get extra innings. Football is rigidly timed. And it will end even if we must go to... Sudden death. And <laughs> baseball, during the game in the stands... There's kind of a picnic feeling. Yes, emotions may run high or low, but there's not that much unpleasantness. In football, during the game, in the stands, you can be sure that at least 27 times during that game, you were perfectly capable of taking the life of a fellow human being. (laughs) And finally, the objectives of the game are entirely different. In football, the object is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, balancing this aerial assault with sustained ground attack that punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. And to be safe, we all will be safe at home. George Carlin, River he is, thank you for that. Now, baseball has its many detractors. Some of you perhaps are laughing for the first time ever at the mention of baseball because of George Carlin. It's maybe the first ever pleasurable experience you've had with the game. Yes, we know it's boring, you say. Yes, we know you say, oh, it lasts so long. It's every day, 162 games. Football is good at 16 games, one day a week. But I got to tell you, this is why baseball is like life and football is not. The truth in baseball emerges day in, day out, day after day, not on any single day. Football, and George Carlin is right if you've been to an Eagles game, especially in the old veteran stadium, I think 27 times is underestimating it in terms of the amount of times you can imagine yourself taking human life in that place. Football inspires a real sense of light versus dark, good versus bad. It's a kind of religious frenzy, and it's not at all an accident, I think, that football happens very often on the Sabbath, the religious day. But baseball doesn't occur in the high points. Baseball occurs in ordinary time, one day after another, after another, after another, adding up. Baseball is about endurance. And not necessarily just the endurance of aches and pains and struggle. Sometimes that's part of it. But it's the endurance of what it takes to live a meaningful life day by day. Day after day. One day at a time. And sometimes people say, baseball is boring. You look at it and nothing's happening. Well... That means you don't know how to look, at least not at the game. Applying that lesson to life, we might say that right here, right now, maybe not all that much is happening. You might say that on Tuesday of this week, Wednesday, Thursday. You might think life is boring. But if you can look closer, you will see that everything is there in that moment if you can wake up to it. Now, this is not just the season of opening day. It's also a time... The holidays, Palm Sunday in many Christian traditions today, time of Passover in the Jewish tradition, the celebration, the commemoration of the ancient story of the Israelites being released from slavery into freedom. Except if you know that story, it doesn't quite work out the way the Israelites want it to. They're released from bondage and they think we are going to the promised land. We got an express ticket. And 40 years later, they wind up there. From slavery to the Promised Land, it is a long journey. It is 40 years longer than they expected it would be. And in that time, their freedom becomes seasoned. It becomes something they only understand because they have to endure day by day. They don't get exactly what they want all the time. There are many lessons in the story of that particular redemption... But the greatest, I think, of these and the way it applies to our lives here today is that true spiritual growth, the kind of spiritual growth that will really be with us every day that we live, it is not about the easy way. It is not about having the ideal circumstances in our life. And when we have the ideal circumstances, then we will be happy. Then we will be fulfilled. True spirituality, in whatever tradition it comes, in whatever name that it is called. True spirituality is about becoming the kind of person who does not look for the quick fix, about becoming the kind of community together in which we can really share in the blessings of this life and know that they happen day by day, and together we can live a long journey. As we grow deeper in our spiritual practice, and that's what this message series is about, cultivating our spiritual fitness, whether it's on your meditation cushion or your yoga mat or whether with prayer beads in your hand. If you truly engage that practice, you will come to know the outer limits of who you are. And you'll be surprised there. Sometimes you'll be overjoyed and sometimes you'll be absolutely frightened and sometimes you will just be plain bored. And there you will come to know what many traditions call what it is to be a spiritual warrior, to know the meaning of the internal struggle that is the basis of all true spirituality. Before the meaning of it was deformed, both by some Muslims and by some in the Western world, this is the meaning of what is called jihad. It is that internal struggle to know yourself most completely and to know the light and the dark, the good and the bad, the wholeness of your life and to come to peace with all of it. In the spiritual warrior's walk, in the hero's journey, what we learn most profoundly is that there is a great difference between willfulness and willingness. They share the same root word, but there is a huge difference between willfulness and willingness. Willfulness says... I want to be assured of the outcome. And it says, I will make this happen without reservation. I will see what will come to pass because I will make it so. The problem with that kind of reasoning is that sometimes we do not get the outcomes that we want, sometimes even the outcomes that are closest to our own hearts. And if we build our lives in this way, we will only be satisfied when we get exactly what we want. And baseball is, again, instructive in this way. Best hitter of all time. Who was it? Ted Williams. Thank you. Ted Williams failed about 65% of the time that he wanted to do his job. The greatest hitter of all time failed 65% of the time. Didn't get the outcome that he went up there with the intention of getting every single time. And sometimes in baseball, you can do everything right. The bat is right on the ball. And it flies 400 feet, and it soars, and it lands on the warning track into the center fielder's glove. You have done everything right, but yet you don't succeed. Or maybe you have, and that's just the way the game is played, and that's just the way that life is. If we believe in willfulness above all else, we are believing in what we can call spiritual narcissism that we truly are the center of the world and the world will conform to the way that we want it to be. However, this way of living is the surest ticket I know to the hell of absolute loneliness. Because if we are in control and we do not get what we want, well, then somehow life must oppose us. On the other side, there is willingness, which does not trust in the assurance of outcomes, but trusts in this, the assurance that we give maximum effort. Trying says, I will do my best when we are willing. Now that word, trying, it has something of a bad name, particularly for men, not just men, but men of my generation because we grew up in a certain time, a certain place, and we started to hear a voice, a voice that was for many of us our first almost spiritual teacher, someone who gave trying a bad rap and an unfair name. Who is to blame for this, for painting trying with a negative brush? (laughs) And fire strikes back. Do or do not. There is no try. Now, George Lucas, this was his attempt at pop spirituality. And think about it. Sort of spoke broken but wise, wise wise-ish English. Yoda, Buddha. You get what he was at there, George Lucas trying to equate an equivalence. Well, in this matter, Yoda is not quite wise at all. Trying is not, true trying is not half-heartedness. It is a commitment to give of your full self without the absolute guarantee that the outcome you get is the outcome that you want. This is where we come to know the real experience of faith. Of giving from the fullness of ourselves even before we know the outcome will be. Very often in life we don't know the outcome and that is all right. Because there we let go of the, the illusion that we are in complete command of everything. In spiritual practice, whether it's on your mats or on your cushion or with your prayer beads or with your journal or with your version of sacred scripture. You will come to that place probably over and over again in knowing what it means to endure, of listening, not trying to cast it away, but of listening to pain or anxiety or frustration or disappointment or impatience or all the things that are just simply a part of life. And instead of denying those things, we might recognize that we can grow through them and even because of them. Now, there's a book I mentioned a few weeks ago that just came out on the 24th of this past month. It's called How God Changes Your Brain. It's by Dr. Andrew Newberg. Some of you, I think, have heard of him. He teaches at UPenn, and he started out as a radiologist. And what he does, he takes brain scans of people at their deepest levels of spiritual practice. And he very much, in this book, How God Changes Your Brain, and really it's a misnomer. It should be called more generally How Spiritual Practice Changes Your Brain. He says that regular spiritual practice, especially that that takes time each day to do it, it is very much like a fitness routine, like a form of exercise. Exercise for the body, spiritual practice for the mind, and for obviously our spirits. Now I want to show you one thing right here. That is the amygdala. You have one. I have one. It is in a little inset box in the book, Dr. Andrew Newberg tells us. Even before we were recognizable to ourselves, the version of this amygdala has been around for 450 million years, doing exactly one thing, telling you and telling me when we need to be absolutely scared out of our wits. Next slide. This, see where the light is going on there? That is the anterior cigulate. It's a part of our brain that is only about 15 million years old. Which is to say, the scared part of our brain has been around a lot longer than the part of our brain, as this does, that controls intuition, controls empathy, allows us to grow in social awareness. One of the coolest things that Dr. Newberg has found out through his studies of taking brain scan after brain scan after brain scan of people who engage in regular, regular spiritual practice is that if you're like me and you have an overactive amygdala and you find yourself afraid of things, whether they go bump in the night or go boo during the day, you will find that the greatest way to turn that part of your brain off is to develop this part of your brain. And the way to do that is with regular, daily, spiritual practice. It is learning to endure through those times of, again, the impatience or the boredom or the fear and learning to stick with it. Now, one of the most interesting things that Dr. Newberg talks about in his book is that five minutes a day will not get it done. It will not change your brain. It may make you feel peaceful in that moment, but what he recommends from what he has observed, and again, he is a follower of no particular tradition at all. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes even, a regular spiritual practice will help you actually change the shape of your brain. A number of years ago, there was a book, and it was a bit of a little bit of a phenomenon among sort of uh, some right-wing Christians. It's called Prayer of Jabez. Any of you remember that? The Prayer of Jabez. It came out, I think, about 1998, 1999. And Jabez was a minor character who merits exactly one line in a book in the Hebrew Scriptures. But what the book said is that if you pray in exactly the same way that Jabez did, and you aim your intention in this way, you will get exactly everything that you ask for. Well, we got a word for that called snake oil. (laughs) The problem is that it's that easy way out. It's that easy way out that says, well, someone else has done it, and if I just copy what they do, then you know what? I'll get that too. I'll get everything I want. Just like the Israelites in the desert came to learn, there is no way out of the longer journey. The only way out is through towards the other side and deeper, truer spiritual growth. Emerson, our great sage, in a moment of real, not self-reliance, but real humility, he said that faith makes us, we don't make it. I think it's exactly what Dr. Andrew Newberg would recognize as well, too, that the changes occur inside of us, in our brain, as we practice day after day, even if we might think that nothing is going on. We can't will it, we can't make it happen, we can't think our way into it, but We can make the choice to remain open and in that way experience real change in life. One of my favorite thinkers, Soren Kierkegaard, said that the truth about prayer, regular prayer, regular practice of prayer, is not that it changes God. It doesn't. It changes the heart of the person who prays every day. Recently, I heard from someone who was really wrestling with some doubts They had some questions about whether their prayer was doing, as they said, any good. And I recognize that, the truth of it, because I struggle with my own sense, is this doing any good, any good for anyone but me? Now, if you pray regularly, meditate regularly, whatever your form of spiritual practice is, if you do it regularly, you will recognize those moments. What good is this doing? Couldn't I just go home and watch television? Wouldn't it be easier? That way. Now, the ultimate outcome of whether our prayers affect reality, I don't know. Some studies say yes, some studies say no, some studies exactly found a negative correlation. That if someone knew they were being prayed for by another person and they were recovering from a cardiac procedure, their actual health went down. The theory behind it is that they started to have the expectation about outcomes and they started to get anxious. They started to reduce prayer to a form of willfulness. So I don't know if our prayers do, quote-unquote, any good in the sense of affecting an outcome. But what we can say is this, and this is what Dr. Andrew Newberg backs up, is that day after day after day, in prayer, in opening ourselves up to the source of love and life and being, what we are doing is shaping the contours of our own hearts And forming it into the shape of loving kindness. Becoming more kind, becoming more compassionate, becoming more just, becoming more patient. All these things, all these things that are so very good. And actually I must tell you for those moments if you have doubt in your spiritual practice that it is doing any good, I want to tell you that's a great thing. Because that is making your spiritual practice stronger. The worst kinds of faith in this life right now on this world are those kinds of faith that say doubt is a horrible thing. But in reality, those are the varieties of faith that are the weakest because they cannot be tested and they will not be tried. When we allow ourselves to experience doubt and endure through it, it cures us of the belief that spiritual practice is a kind of instantaneous magic a little pixie dust that we can sprinkle on ourselves and make ourselves feel all better right now. It returns us when we struggle with this kind of doubt to the interior realms of our own heart and to a kind of sober hope that is not a flight of fancy away from life. Without being tested by doubt, without being tested by distractions, without being tested by even our own impatience, our spiritual practice will be weak. And so we should welcome doubt. You should. Because through it, your faith becomes strong and your practice becomes something that you can truly rely upon. This is the basic truth in so many religious traditions. The Israelites wandered in the desert. Jesus was tempted in the desert. Before he reached enlightenment, the Buddha was tempted by the demon called Mara, offering him temptation for things that he thought he might have wanted. For us, it's probably not the presence of an actual or literal demon that comes to us. But I know I feel it all the time. I feel it regularly in my spiritual practice. Oh, there's something good on TV. I could watch Lost again for the third time this week on DVR. (laughs) I want to go outside to play. Well, sometimes those are good things to do. But if they come up regularly and regularly and regularly again we know that we are experiencing our own version of temptation. And if we can follow that temptation and stay with it and endure through it, we will be building the kind of spirituality that actually can get us through the darkest nights of our soul. We will know is one of my favorite bands, the band that I fell in love with this past November, a band called The Hold Steady, the truth of what they sing in a song of theirs that I was a skeptic at first, but these miracles work. I'm still a skeptic right now. And still these miracles work. The miracles are not the ones that come out of the sky or tune a blue sky day instantly cloudy or gray or raining or flooding. These are the miraculous conceptions of our own lives. When your life and our lives go from changed to deepened. From fearful to loving, from ignorance and apathy to compassion and belonging, all these things are not arrived at easily, but they will be arrived at if you stick with a regular spiritual practice. Also as well, what will happen, and it is a remarkable thing, is that if you are just willing to try day after day after day, a new story of your life will emerge, a new story of who you are will become real to you. We endure through times of our practice when we struggle, when the old words don't seem to matter anymore, and we don't know what the new words are yet. You will find that there is a bigger, better story of your life waiting for you. It even can affect the kind of pain that we experience in our lives. There was a story on NPR last week sometime. It was about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. It's one of those new shows because one of the other shows went out of business. Can't exactly even remember what it was. But it was a story about the fact that there is an absolute difference in the amount of morphine that gunshot victims on the battlefield asked for versus gunshot victims of people who have been the objects of crime. And at first they thought, well, you know, soldiers, tough guys, tough women, you know, they can just bear it out. They can grit their teeth through it. And they found out once they controlled for that explanation, that didn't solve the question. Why is it that soldiers on the battlefield asked for all the time less painkiller than people who have been shot when they've been the victim of a crime? It comes down to this. The soldiers tell themselves a different story of their lives. When a soldier is shot, they may think, Well, I'm a soldier. This is what I'm here to do. I don't like it, and it hurts, but you know what? Maybe this is my ticket out of here. Maybe this is my ticket home. Maybe as a result of this, I'll be a hero. Maybe as a result of this, I'll get a purple heart. I'll get a medal. The person who is shot, who is a victim of a crime, experiences none of those things. The story we tell ourselves when we struggle matters utmost. Sharon Salzberg is one of my favorite teachers, a Buddhist teacher, told in her book called Faith, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience, of the moments when she first started to study and really commit to the path of the Buddha. And she experienced her life with a different story entirely for the first time. Her dysfunctional family, her father who was depressed all the time and finally took his own life, this legacy of struggle And sorrow and despair that was hers that she never thought there was a way out of. Well, there wasn't a way out of it. But there was a deeper way into it. When she started studying the path of the Buddha, she knew that she was not the only one ever to study and to struggle and to commit herself to the path of enlightenment that lies through the path of sorrow. When we do this, we can reframe our lives, find that bigger and better story. And the next time you are really, really struggling, and I hope it is not soon for you and I hope it is not now, but it is inevitable for all of us. See just for a moment if you can get a distance upon your own thoughts and your own feelings that you can see the contours of your heart. Ask yourself, What story are you telling yourselves about what is going on in your life right now? It may not be a story that you like very much, but at least in becoming aware of it, you can then try to change it. Years ago, about six years ago, I ran the first of three very difficult, well, they were just difficult for me. For some people, they're just a daily run. First of three half marathons. And... It was not much fun for me, and then I chose to run another one, and that was not much fun. And then I chose to run another one, and that was not much fun. I said, okay, I think three times and we're out here. But what it did after I ran that first half marathon, four months after that, I was five months into the dissolution of my first marriage. A time in my life in which I didn't know any longer what the story of my life was going to be, or at least the outcome that I thought I was going to get, I did not get. And what that half marathon gave me was a deeper and a better story. When I was five months in, and I didn't quite know the way out yet, and I was struggling, and I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, suddenly it came to me. This is like miles seven to ten in the half marathon. Far, far away from the beginning, with the crowd cheering you on, no more beginner's mind, no more euphoria, the people you started the race with, and I started it with people who are accomplished marathoners, they had left me in their dust about a tenth of a mile into the race. I was on my own. mile 7 to 10, whew, I'm barely halfway past. I can't start to look forward yet until the end. If I do, everything will seem like a chore until I get to that place. So there was just one choice left to me, and this is how I started to understand my own struggles as I remade my own heart. Seven to ten, these are the lonely miles. These are the miles in which all you can do, I said to myself, is focus on the step, after the step, after the step, Try and have the breath get a little bit deeper down than here. See if you can get it down to here. And see if you can then get it down to there. These are the moments in which it is okay to struggle. These are the moments in which it is not just okay, but indeed entirely logical that you will be lonely and that I will be lonely. And you know in mile 7 to 10, whatever and however that metaphor works for your life, That is where you win the race. It's not at the end that you win the race. It is in the middle. When you are past the start and it's euphoria and you are far away from the end because the only way that you ever get to the end is by sticking and gutting it out in miles 7 to 10. That is where we learn what endurance can do for all of us. And we learn one final thing as well, too. It comes from the wise, wise words of Helen Keller, who knew probably as much as anyone ever did in life about loneliness and endurance and also steadfastness. On your meditation mat, in yoga, in your prayer, what you'll finally encounter is this what Helen Keller said. Security, as most of us conceive it, she says, is mostly a superstition. Security does not exist in nature. Life is either a daring adventure or it is nothing. Life is either a daring adventure or it is nothing. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. A divine source of call, eternal wellspring of the invitation to be a traveler. To find ourselves at times on the open road or in the desert, those moments when we struggle. We ask for the capacity and would remain committed to the capacity of living this day, of living this moment, of walking this step, of breathing this breath, even if this place is not pleasant right now. May all of us know and be blessed by the knowledge that truly the only way out is through, but there is another side. May we trust enough and have hope enough, faith enough, not that the outcome is predetermined for us, but that the effort we give to this life, which takes the form of love and wisdom, that this effort is enough and it is sufficient for us to become who we need to be. Amen.